We're going to look at Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Lamentations 3, 19 through 21. And I've titled this morning's message, Hope in Suffering. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that we began to look at this chapter, Lamentations chapter 3, and we saw that in this chapter, the prophet is processing his own suffering in light of God's truth, which is what a biblical lament is. The whole book of Lamentations, it's a way of processing the suffering that occurred at the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in light of the truth about who God is and what He is doing. And then this chapter in particular The prophet is allowing us to eavesdrop on his own heart as he deals with suffering himself. Now last week in verses 1-18, through we learned that faithfulness is God's goal in our suffering. God doesn't send suffering into the life of His children to be mean or vindictive or because He hates us. In fact, we saw just the opposite. God sends suffering into our lives because we need faith and we need to be faithful. God is allowing us to endure, to strengthen our faith and increase our faithfulness. That's God's goal. And if God's goal in suffering is for our faithfulness, then our goal in suffering must be faithfulness as well. When we enter into a trial, as we're in the midst of a trial, as we're battling against temptation, the goal is not relief. The goal is not escape. The Lord will take care of those things. Our goal, our responsibility, is faithfulness to our Lord. And so the prophet is allowing us to see the way he processed this suffering, to see the work that the Lord did in his heart, so that we too can grow in our faithfulness, so that we can be readied and prepared to face our own suffering. In a manner similar to what the Apostle Paul said, essentially the prophet is saying, follow me while I faithfully suffer in the Lord. And in the verses that we're going to look at today, the prophet is specifically shepherding us towards hope in the midst of suffering. Look with me at these verses. I'm going to read verses 19 through 21. And here the word of the Lord says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. You see, in these verses, the prophet is moving his own heart and thus he's shepherding us towards hope in the midst of suffering. Really, hope in the midst of any kind of circumstance. But before we can be shepherded towards hope, we have to understand what the prophet is even talking about when he mentions hope. In other words, we have to have a biblical understanding of what hope actually is. In order to understand what hope is, we need to first understand what it is not. Hope is not feeling good about your circumstances or wishing for better circumstances. That's not what hope is. Hope isn't a feeling, a good feeling that you have. Hey, look, I'm, I'm feeling good about my situation. That's hopeful, right? No, that's, that's not hope. Not from a biblical perspective. Or sometimes, you know, you just got to keep the hope alive, you know. I think this year might be the year the Eagles are actually going to win the Super Bowl. You got to keep the hope alive. I mean, it's not going to happen, but keep the hope alive. Well, that's not hope. That's not hope. That's just grasping for straws. That's a wish. That's a dream. It's what you want to happen. That's not biblical hope. Hope is not feeling good about your situation or wishing for a better situation. That's not what biblical hope is. You say, well, what is hope? Well, if we were to define biblical hope, we might do it succinctly in this fashion. Hope is a confident and patient expectation of specific outcomes promised by God. Let me give that to you again. 
Here's what hope is. Hope is a confident, in other words, a certainty. It's not just you wanting something to happen. It's a confidence that it's going to happen. A confident and patient, in other words, you're not only sure it's going to happen, but, but you're trusting the Lord for the timing of it. A confident and patient expectation of specific outcomes promised by God. In other words, you're looking to specific promises that are set forth in God's Word, and you're saying, I know this is going to happen. This is my future. For instance, as believers in Christ, we have the promise of a future glorification, right? That's something that we hope for. It's not something we wish for. It's not something that we think might happen. The Lord has promised it to us. Just as sure as Christ has been raised from the dead, we too will be raised and glorified and we will be with Him. That is a hope that we have. A confident and patient expectation that we look forward to. And in this way, hope is very similar to faith. In fact, hope is an outworking of faith. Hope is faith looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promises no matter what our present circumstances might look like. That's what hope is. Look, I don't care what I see going around, on around me right now. All I know is what God has promised to me, and that's what I'm going to hang my hat on. That's hope. To use the language of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You see the connection there between faith and hope? And in faith and hope, there is an assurance. It's not just what you want to happen. It's what you have an assurance of what will happen. It's the conviction of things not seen. There is an assurance. There is a conviction to hope. Hope says, I know what God has promised will happen. It's just a matter of time and I'm willing to wait for it. That's biblical hope. I know what God has promised is going to happen. It's just a matter of time and I am willing to wait for it. That's biblical hope. This, by the way, is the kind of hope, the kind of faith-driven hope that Abraham exemplified in his own life. God promised him a whole nation would come from him, a whole nation of descendants. And at that point, he had zero descendants, no children whatsoever. That's a situation from a human perspective where we would say, well, there is no hope, Right? But Romans chapter 4, verse 18 says, In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. There was a specific promise that God had made. He believed that promise, and then he held on to that promise for hope in the midst of his circumstances. That's the nature of biblical hope. And, and, and this hope is available for sinners like us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel unlocks all of God's promises for His people. You remember 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. In other words, we can be confident that everything the Lord has promised to us, we will receive because we've received the gospel of Jesus Christ. All those promises that God made about sending a Redeemer to save sinners from their sins, He kept those promises. All those promises that God made of redeeming a people for Himself as His own new creation, the promises of a new covenant where He would write His law upon the hearts of His people, where He would pour out His Spirit upon them. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have seen, experienced, and received these promises. And if through the gospel of Jesus Christ, by believing in Christ, His person, His death, His resurrection from the dead, if through believing in Him we have been saved by His work, then we have hope that every last one of His promises will be fulfilled for us. We have hope. The problem, especially when it comes time to suffer, 
The problem is that people, even Christians, tend to live hopeless lives. What does it mean to live a hopeless life? It means to live a life with no focus on the future promises of God. To live a life so consumed by your present circumstances that you have no confidence in the future that God has promised for us. And often, we find ourselves in a hopeless state without even realizing it because we've removed hope from our life, a forward-looking confidence in God's promise, and we've replaced it with some other thing. Sometimes we replace hope with apathy. In other words, we're hopeless because we live indifferently to God's promises. We're just apathetic. We don't really care that much about the truth of God. We're not standing on the promises. We're chasing after the entanglements of the world. We're so enamored with with earthly gain. We're so enamored with our own comfort and leisure and entertainment that we don't even have any more room left in our lives and in our thoughts for the promises of the future that God has for us. We're just kind of apathetic towards God's promises. We don't think much about them. We don't read much about them. We don't learn much about them. We don't care much about them. Well, that's how you end up hopeless. Or maybe sometimes you'll remove hope from the equation and replace hope with what we might call resignation. This is my lot in life. I'm resigned to that. This is what it is. We're hopeless because we live as if this is all there is and all there ever will be. These are my circumstances, and my circumstances determine who I am. Well, what about the promises of God? What, what is this short vapor of a life and the even shorter vapor of suffering that you're enduring compared with the eternal weight of glory that God has promised to you? But no, we just kind of resign ourselves. I'm miserable now, and I'll always be miserable. And we lose sight of the hope that we have. Or similarly to resignation, sometimes we replace hope with pessimism. We're hopeless because we live as if there is no good in our lives and it'll only get worse. You say, well, that's not me. Well, do you do more praising or complaining? And we, we get so caught up with what we perceive to be the negatives in our life and the bad things in our life that we can't see any of the good that God is doing or has done. We sit around with a bunch of other believers who miraculously have been saved from their sins through the divine grace of God. Undeserving. A bunch of eternal miracles all gathered together in one room. But but what do we do? We just want to complain because... I can't believe this happened at work or wouldn't you know it, this broke on me or can you believe that person is always doing that? Well, look, are those problems you got to deal with? Yeah. But does that determine who you are and what your life is? No. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, the promises of God determine that. Don't replace hope for some weak pessimism. Or sometimes, and this is, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, but just as unhelpful, we replace true biblical hope, a confident focus on the promises of God, we replace hope with fantasizing. Well, I really wish this would happen. I I dream about this happening. They're all self-made scenarios, mind you. Oh, if I could get this dream job, my life would be different. Boy, if I found this person and, and we could make a life together or if this happened or if I could just get that raise or, you know, if I had one more week of vacation. It's not hope. Might be looking forward to something, but it's not the specific promises that God has given to us. It's our own self-made scenarios that we think would be better than where we're at right now. So you might say, well, I'm not a pessimist, I'm an optimist. Well, if you're optimistic about your own wishes and desires and self-made scenarios, that's not going to do you any more spiritual good than pessimism is. They're all hope replacements. 
And all of this is important for us to note because in our passage this morning, the prophet is working through his hopeless state in the midst of suffering and he's seeking hope. You see, the suffering that he went through had revealed a weakness in his faith which led to a state of hopelessness. Remember last week, verse 18, he gets to the end of this whole litany of things that he's endured. Some of them he describes somewhat uh, accurately. Others, it's, it's marred with sinful self-pity. He's ascribing motives to God that he doesn't even understand. And he finally gets to verse 18 after all this emoting. And he gets to verse 18 and he finally confronts his self-pity. And he, and he gets to the real heart of the problem. He says, so I say... My endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Now, had the promises of God failed? No. What failed? His hope. His faith. That's what, my endurance did not last. Suffering, trials, it's about the testing of the faith to produce endurance. His endurance failed because there was a weakness in his faith. He's coming to realize that now. And so because of his weak faith that, that was only brought to light through this suffering, but because of this weak faith, he has now found himself in a position of hopelessness. By the way, this is a big shocker. When he focused on his circumstances and how he felt, he lost sight of hope. When he wasn't looking to the promises of God and the character of God, instead he was looking to his circumstances and how he felt he had no hope. That's instructive, isn't it? He was hopeless. Thankfully, however, one of the things that this passage illustrates is that hopelessness is not a permanent state of being. In fact, as believers in Christ Jesus, we know that we can have hope in the midst of any circumstance. There's a hope from God that penetrates through the deepest suffering and provides us with hope to move forward through. And this passage shows us how it is possible to move from that hopeless state to a state of hopefulness. Even in the midst of the most intense suffering. By the way, just to reorient your mind around this text, before we get into this and you say, well, that worked for him, but boy, you don't know what I'm going through, Pastor. Well, just remember what the prophet Jeremiah was going through. Uh, his city was destroyed. His country was overrun. His people were taken into slavery, the ones who weren't killed. Some were left behind, but they were left behind poor and destitute. The leaders, most of them were killed or carried off. The children were dying of starvation in the streets. During the siege of the city of Jerusalem, uh, people were resorting to cannibalism because they were so hungry. And all along the way, Jeremiah, all he did was preach faithfully the word of God. And he was hated. He was beaten. He was betrayed. He was belittled for doing so. So when we see Jeremiah moving from hopeless to hopeful, I think we can all look at this and say, boy, if the Lord can provide him hope in his circumstances, then I certainly can stand on the hope of God in my own circumstances, whatever they might be. Of course, we can. And this passage helps us to do that. In fact, these verses, Lamentations 3, 19 through 21, they outline for us four steps that will move you towards hope. That's what we're going to look at today. That's how we're going to organize our thoughts. Four steps that will lead you toward hope. And we find the first of these steps in verse 19. Here we read of the prophet's honest prayer. That's the first step. The prophet's honest prayer. You see, friend, you cannot expect to find hope apart from the Lord, which means you cannot expect to find hope without prayer. You must be willing to honestly confess your struggles and cast your cares upon the Lord in the pursuit of hope. 
And that's exactly what the prophet is doing. He is cultivating hope in his heart by praying the promises of God and confessing his struggles to God. In fact, notice the very first word of verse 19. Remember. Remember. This might not seem like much, but it's significant language in the Old Testament. This is covenant language. In fact, how many times have we seen throughout the Old Testament where it says, and the Lord remembered His covenant with Abraham, and the Lord remembered His promises to Israel, and the Lord remembered, and the Lord remembered, and the Lord remembered. This is all covenant language. And so in essence, when the prophet says, Lord, remember, He's appealing to the very promises of God that he needed to hope in. This, by the way, this this covenant remembering, that's what delivered Israel out of Egypt, which is significant because what's, what's happening with Israel now, with Judah? They've been taken into captivity, right? So in in order to get out of that captivity, what are they going to need? Well, essentially, they're going to need a replay on the Exodus. They're going to need God to deliver them out. They're going to need God to remember His covenant, just as He did before. In fact, Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came to God, and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Why? He remembered the covenant. And so he set his love upon them. That's exactly what Jeremiah the prophet is praying for in verse 19. Lord, you remember. You remember your covenant people. You remember your prophet. You remember me. Those promises that you made to me, I'm appealing to you on the basis, not of what I've done, but on the basis of the promises that you have made. By the way, this is a huge step in moving from no hope to hope, isn't it? To go back to God's promises where the hope lied in the first place. This practice of praying the promises of God back to Him It's such a crucial strategy, not just generally for spiritual growth, but also in our battle for hope. You get in the Word and you find the promises that God has made to His people. And then when you go to Him in prayer, you pray those promises right back to Him. Lord, you promised that there would never be a situation, never be a temptation in which you would not provide a way of escape where I can believe you and get out of this situation rather than sin. Right now I'm in a temptation Um, You gave me that promise. I'm calling you on the promise. You deliver me from this. You deliver me from this. Lord, you promised you'd never give more than I can handle. It uh, it feels like I've got more than I can handle right now. You promise this. You strengthen me and keep your promise to me. You pray the promises of God right back to him. That's what the prophet is doing here. And alongside of praying the promises of God back to him, he's also honestly confessing his own struggles in that. He's not saying, okay, Lord, you need to keep your covenant promises because I have been strong in all of this. That's not what he says. He says, remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. That wormwood and the gall, it's the bitterness. It's the bitterness. Lord, you know I am tore up inside. You know that, that bitterness is the permeating influence of my life right now. More than your promises, I'm focused on bitterness. I confess that. I conf- That's why I need you to remember, Lord. I need you to remember me Because I'm struggling to remember your promises. He didn't hypocritically try to hide his struggles in prayer. He honestly confessed them and he was pleading for help. That's what suffering offering requires, doesn't it? Suffering requires that we just keep going back to the Lord. Remember Romans 12, 12? 
rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. This kind of honest prayer is indispensable for finding hope. And the faith that keeps going back to the Lord in prayer will eventually lead to hope in the midst of suffering. And, and when you're praying in faith, when you're praying God's promises back to Him, and at the same time you're confessing the difficulty of your own situation, maybe not even confessing sin, you're just saying, Lord, this is hard, look how hard this is. All of a sudden, when you say out loud to the Lord, right next to each other, His eternal promises, and then right after saying His eternal promises to Him, you describe your present temporal circumstances, all of a sudden it starts to put things, puts things into perspective, doesn't it? Lord, this is so hard. The people at work all hate me. But Lord, You've promised me an eternal home with Your people in perfect fellowship with You for all of eternity. Wow, does it, does it make enduring that situation at work any easier? Well, it's still going to be hard, but does it put it in perspective for you? You better believe it does. When you pray about temporary circumstances alongside of the eternal promises of God, it, it helps to put things in perspective for you. It helps you to see God's purposes in your struggles and trials and suffering. It helps you to evaluate the severity of your trials, and it helps to deepen your hope. See, the Lord is the only one who can guarantee eternal outcomes that we hope in, so if we're going to find hope in the midst of suffering, what do we need to do? We need to go to Him in prayer. Additionally, we find a second hope, a se second step towards hope in verse 20. Here we read about the prophet's humble submission. That's the second step. Humble submission. See, what you need to understand is this. If you focus only on changing your present situation, you'll never have hope. You know why? You can't control your present situation. God's got you where He's got you. And until His providential hand moves you somewhere else, you're not going anywhere else. And if your focus is just on changing your situation, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, you're never going to have hope. In fact, if you're focusing only on changing your present situation, then eventually, when you can't change your circumstances on your own, what's going to happen is you're going to start to resent God for putting you in that situation. The more you try to change your circumstances, the more you're going to realize, wait a minute, I can't. This is where God's got me. And if you're not careful, instead of finding hope, you're going to end up resenting your sovereign Lord. No. If you want hope, you want to look to the future with confident expectation, with hope, then you must humbly submit to the Lord in your present circumstances. And notice how the prophet describes this kind of humble submission in his own life. Verse 20, he says, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Essentially, the prophet is, is asking the Lord, you remember me. You remember me and your covenant promises. You remember my circumstances. And then he says, because how could I forget them? How could I forget? My soul continually remembers the circumstances that I'm in. You've been there before. In that suffering, in that trial, in that temptation, in that difficulty that, that becomes so life-consuming, it's almost as if you can't even forget about it for a moment. And what's interesting here is that earlier in verse 18, the prophet says, I've forgotten what goodness is, but now he says, I cannot forget what the suffering is in my life. His sorrow and suffering had penetrated to his very soul and it was the overwhelming influence in his life. In fact, verse 15, it says that he has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. 
He's filled me to the brim. He's permeated and soaked every fiber of my being with suffering. That's how it felt to the prophet. But even in this verse, though, we see that all that suffering, it was not wasted. All that suffering, it was for a purpose. And, and, and the prophet now is beginning to see that purpose because he says not only does his soul remember the suffering, but he adds at the end of verse 20, and is bowed down within me. In other words, all that suffering had a humbling effect in the prophet's life. That's what this phrase, bowed down within me, signifies signifies being humbled to a state in which you realize your own significant limits. You realize the limits of your own personal resources. The prophet's saying, I suffered, and I remember that suffering, and I'm still in the midst of that suffering. And you know what that suffering did? That suffering humbled me. Sometimes suffering, if we let it, will have an opposite effect on us, won't it? It doesn't humble us, it hardens us. We bow up under it. We don't bear it as the Lord would have us to do. We bow up under it. We kick against it. Why do you still have me here, Lord? Why are you doing this, Lord? Why? Okay, I got it, Lord. Now move on. As if we know and God doesn't. The prophet says, no, I, I am now bowed down. My soul is bowed down within me. I am humbled. And you understand, that's the key to finding hope in the midst of your suffering. It's not a change in circumstance. You would not have more hope if after church today you were headed to a week at the beach. I promise. You might have more fun, but not more hope. There's a difference. Humble submission to the Lord's will for your life, not a change in your circumstances. That is what will bring you out of despair into hope. Look, if you could be hopeless in the midst of these circumstances right now by not looking to the Lord, then if the Lord gives you everything you want, you'll still be hopeless. You just won't even know it. In fact, the Lord often uses hard circumstances to cultivate this kind of humility leading to hope in our lives. God did the same thing to, the, to, to Job. Job was a righteous man. He was a righteous man, more righteous than anyone on the earth. How'd you like that on your, your, your tombstone? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's quite the spirit-inspired description of a person, isn't it? And yet God took Job and put him through the ringers. Put him through the ringers of suffering. He suffered like no one here will ever have to suffer uh, uh, in all likelihood. And at the end of that suffering, do you know, what the, you know what the benefit of that suffering was for Job? You know what that suffering led to in Job's life? It led to humility. Remember at first, Job just kept talking back to the Lord. Well, I'd like the Lord to judge in this. I'd like it if I could find, we might translate the word, an umpire, an impartial arbitrator. I'd like to have an arbitrator, a fair arbitrator between me and God so that everyone could see that I am righteous in all this. And, and God just let Job keep going, keep going, keep going until finally his soul was bowed down within him. And you know what he did? The Lord spoke up and rebuked Job and Job said, Okay, I am now going to put my hand over my mouth. Just in case I have the thought of saying something back to you again, I'm going to put my hand there to make sure that it does not come out. God used suffering to humble Job. Not because he was some rank, sinful, vile man, but because he needed more humility. He needed a humility that leads to hope. And the same thing is true for the prophet in Lamentations, and the same thing is true in our life. And if we're going to benefit from this sanctifying work that the Lord does, then we must submit to the Lord's humbling discipline. 
And if we don't submit to it, if we bow up against it, it will harden us and rob us of hope. But if we will submit to the Lord, Lord, this is where you got me. This is where you got me. I'm going to seek faithfulness to you right here. I'm not going to wait until my circumstances change to seek faithfulness to you. Which, by the way, just as an aside, that is one of the most dangerous lies Satan tells. You know, the reason why you're not reading your Bible right now is because it's a busy time at work, right? Sure. You know, the reason why you're really not walking with the Lord the way you used to is just because you're at that stage of life where the kids are young and you're chasing the kids around. But when you get to a different stage in life, then you'll really love the Lord. It kind of sounds ridiculous when I say it like that, but those are the kind of excuses that we run to all the time, right? You know, I'd really be plugged into the church except, you know, I got this going on right now. But after I'm done with this earthly pursuit, then I'll plug into the eternal work God's doing in the church. It's not changing circumstances. It's submitting to the Lord where He's got you right now and pursuing faithfulness right now where He has you. That's the kind of attitude that leads to hope. Even if the Lord's got you in suffering. 1 Peter chapter 5 Verse 6 says this. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He might exalt you. Do you see? What's the hope there? What's the promise? That God's going to exalt us, right? So what do we do? We look forward with confident expectation of the day when we will be exalted by God, and it will far exceed anything on this earth. And for right now, you know what we do? We humble ourselves and submit to right where He has us. A submitted heart is a vital component for cultivating hope in our life. You will not grow without seeking the Lord in prayer and you will not grow in hope without submitting to the providential hand of the Lord in your life. Those are the first two steps. Honest prayer, humble submission. And as we turn to verse 21, we find a third step. Here we read about the prophet's heartfelt repentance. Heartfelt repentance. That's the third step. You see, if you're going to move from hopelessness to hope, then your heart needs to change, not your circumstances. There must be a change in your thinking that produces a change in your hope. Or to put it another way, hope requires repentance. Remember, we did a couple weeks on repentance from Lamentations earlier in this study, and we defined repentance as a change in your life, a turn that stems from a change in your thinking. So, so the way you think and believe something leads to a, a change in the way you act and respond. That kind of repentance is necessary to have hope. And notice how the prophet describes his own turn away from despair and towards hope. Your circumstances do not produce hope. The Lord gives hope to those who repent and turn back to Him. Verse 21, the prophet says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Now this verse, at first glance, when it's translated in this fashion... It, it, it almost doesn't seem like it's talking about repentance, but this verse is really detailing how the prophet turned away from his own hopeless self-pity and turned back to the Lord. In fact, the phrase here, I call to mind, is what it's translated in the ESV. It literally could be translated, I bring back my heart. That's a literal translation. That word translated call, it, it, it's to return, to turn, to take back. And the word translated mind, it's actually the word for heart. Which really, mind and heart are very similar to one another in the scriptures. But the, the point here is, the prophet's not saying, look, things got better and all of a sudden I cheered up. The prophet is saying, in the midst of my suffering, what I had to do is, I had to drag my heart back away from the despair and turn it back towards the Lord to receive hope. 
I had to repent. I had to repent. Before the prophet could enjoy the hope that the Lord gives, he had to turn his heart back to the truth of the Lord. By the way, this we won't go there, but when the temple was dedicated in 1 Kings 8, and Solomon prayed this dedica- uh, dedicatory prayer for the temple, one of the things he prayed is that if your people sin and you drag them off into exile, if they will turn their hearts, bring their hearts back to you, if they will repent and turn away from their sins, Lord, bring them back. Bring them back out of the exile. Again, the prophet is going back to the promises of God and he's saying, look, remember what 1 Kings 8 says? Look, I'm bringing my heart back. Give me hope, Lord. That was the key. Notice it says nothing about a change in circumstances. Nothing about a change in situation. Nothing about that new job coming through. Nothing about that extra week of vacation. Simply a repentance, a turning back of the mind, a turning back of the heart. By the way, sometimes the Lord does this. He allows us to suffer loss to reveal that we were actually hoping in something other than Him the whole time. You see, what feels like a no-hope situation is often just God removing the idols from our life. If you as a believer say, man, my situation is hopeless, think about it for a second. If you as a believer say that you are hopeless, that reveals some pretty significant idolatry in your life, doesn't it? Because if, if you lost things or things were taken away or you never got things that you thought you should have and that's why you say you're hopeless, where was your hope resting? It was on all these other things which had become idols in your heart. In the midst of your circumstances, I don't know what your circumstances are, but I know who the Lord is and I know He didn't change one iota and I know His promises did not fail. So when you say, I'm hopeless, my situation is hopeless, really what you're saying is, all this time, instead of hoping in the promises of God, I've been hoping on these other things, and now I don't have them anymore. It's what God was doing to Jerusalem during the time of Lamentations. It's what He'll do in your life. He'll use covenant discipline to bring you to repentance so that you can have true hope in His promises. That's where the prophet is now. That's where the prophet is now. He understood, I've got to turn away from this hopelessness and I have to confidently trust in the future promises of God. And by the way, you need to do this if you're in this hopeless state. You've got to work on your heart because hopelessness, sustained hopelessness. And, and, and what I define, I define hopelessness exactly the way I would find, define hope except the opposite. <laughs> If hope is a confident expectation of the specific promises of God, that forward-looking hope, what God said will happen is going to happen, then hopelessness is a looking away from those promises. It's an ignoring of those promises. That's what biblical hopelessness is. And that kind of hopelessness, when it's sustained over a long period of time, it is detrimental to your soul. That's what led to the prophet's bitterness. And that's what will lead you to despair. If you want to despair, take your eyes off the promises of God. If you want to become spiritually despondent, don't know, don't care. Then you take your eyes off the promises of God. If you want to become spiritually detached from Christ and from His church, then just keep your eyes on something other than the promises of God. That's where hopelessness leads. That's where the prophet was. But now he is dragging his heart back to the promises of God. And look at what he says. Therefore, I have hope. Again, too often we blame our circumstances for our lack of hope when the real problem lies within our hearts. We're looking for a change in our circumstances when what we really need is a change in our hearts. We must turn away from looking to our circumstances 
and our status for hope, and we must turn our hearts back to the promises of God. In other words, heartfelt repentance will lead us to the full hope God promises us. That's the third step. There's one last step I want you to see just briefly here. And this last step is what we might call honorable meditation. Honorable meditation. In other words, the prophet had to trade in his self-pitying thoughts for true thoughts about God's Word. He had to meditate, think about what was honorable, what was true. He had to do what Philippians 4.8 says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The prophet had to take control. As a part of repentance, the prophet had to take control of his thoughts and bring his heart and bring his mind back to the truth. That's what the word this is there for in verse 21. But this I call to mind. This represents all the truths that we're going to study next week in verses 22 through 24. Truths about God's grace. And the prophet is saying, my repentance was regulated by these truths, these thoughts. I had to stop thinking about how bad I thought things were. And I had to turn my back, uh, heart back to the truth of how good God is. So the key to the prophet's hope was controlling his thoughts and focusing them on God's truth rather than his own feelings. See, the prophet had every reason to despair, but every source of despair, it dissipated in the presence of God's truth. How much can we despair when we go to the truth of God and we realize, wait a minute, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Is this hard? Yes. Is it temporary? You better believe it. Really, you better believe that. It's temporary. We have a hope on the other side of this. These are truths that the prophet had to keep coming back to, especially in the midst of suffering. When you are suffering, you need to confront yourself with the truth all the time. Suffering, it tempts us to forget about our hope, doesn't it? We're so focused on our circumstances, we don't even think to look for God's truth. Or, or maybe uh, uh, suffering tempts us to disdain God's truth. You're so bitter about your circumstances. I don't, don't tell me about the promises of God. I'm right here suffering this right now. Wow. You know, you go to somebody suffering and in love, with empathy, you remind them, boy, this is tough and I'm going to walk through it with you. But you just remember God is good and He works together all things for good. Those who love Him have been called according to His purpose. And a person says, don't you quote that trite stuff to me. You don't know what I'm going through. Whoa. Whoa. Your suffering trumps God's promises. You're disdaining hope because of your bitterness. Or maybe suffering will tempt you to exchange hope. Thomas Cranmer, one of the English reformers, was part of a great movement bring truth into England. I'll spare you all the details, but a new ruler, Mary was her name, you might be familiar with her, came to power. And she brought all that popery back to England and Thomas Cramner was given an option, recant or be burned at the stake. Countless faithful men remained faithful and they were burned at the stake. Cramner recanted yeah I, I take it back i think i think you're right mary the pope i think yeah transubstantiation new sacrifice each mass why not what did he do he exchanged eternal hope for temporary escape now just so you have the full story later he recanted his recant and he was burned at the stake for his faithfulness and when he was burned at the stake you know what he did the hand 
which he signed that paper recanting, the hand that he recanted with, he held it in the fire so it would be burned up first. He didn't exchange his hope that time, did he? When we're in the midst of suffering, there's so much temptation to just forfeit all the hope that we have. Don't succumb to that temptation. You keep coming back to the truth. You make your meditation, the thoughts of your mind, you make them honorable. You make them focused on the truth of God and His promises. You make God's truth the controlling perspective in your life in the midst of suffering, and you'll find hope. You'll find hope. You don't look to the truth of God, you'll never find hope. Because God's truth is the only place where we can find hope. Hope is a confident and patient expectation of the outcomes that have been promised by God in His truth. And this text shows us how we can fight for hope and move towards hope, even in the midst of suffering. See, these verses trace the prophet and his life from despair. My hope has perished. To trust in the Lord. Therefore, I have hope. Honest prayer, humble submission, heartfelt repentance, and honorable meditation marked the path the prophet took toward hope. And if you're looking to your circumstances for hope, friend, you're never going to find it. You'll be in verse 18 forever. But if you're looking to God for hope and taking these steps towards the Lord, then your circumstances will never be able to shake your hope. You'll live your whole life in verse 21 until you see all of God's promises come to fruition. We pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the way you penetrated the prophet's soul and dealt with him through suffering. And we thank you for the way you allow us to essentially eavesdrop on your shepherding work in his life. Lord, what we pray is that in the same way you shepherded the prophet, that you would shepherd us. Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace that we need so that we can follow after you, the grace that we need so that we can find hope even in the midst of our struggles. Lord, we pray that you would continue, even as we suffer, that you would continue to sustain us. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith so that we might be ready to endure through whatever you might have us endure. Lord, we love you. We know that you are good. And we are so thankful for the hope that you have provided through your gospel, and through the plethora of promises that you've given to us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to encourage you this morning before we leave that if you have any questions about the service, maybe you're in a situation where you're saying, you know, Pastor, I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless. And I see those steps, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to take those steps, at least not on my own. Well, if that's you, then grab me after the service. Let's pray together and let's figure out how... God's people can come alongside of you and help you take these steps.